This is Science Friday. I'm Ira Flato. Later in the hour, we'll talk about the global influence of Internet states like Facebook and Google. But first, we know scientists study weird things, fish in the deep ocean, galaxies far, far away, sometimes rocks from other solar systems, or things that are so microscopic they could fit a couple of million of them on the, on the head of a pin. But can you imagine studying something that's not even a real physical thing, something that you can't see or hear or feel? And imagine trying to do that while people tell you that you can't do it because you're a woman. Joining me now to talk about all of these topics are three mathematicians. Rebecca Golden is a professor in the Department of Mathematical Sciences, George Mason University in Fairfax, Virginia. She's also the director of STATS, an organization aimed at improving statistical literacy. Welcome to Science Friday. Thank you. Welcome. Eugenia Chang is a scientist in, re in residence at the Chicago School of the Art Institute of Chicago in Chicago. Welcome to Science Friday. Hi, thanks for having me back. It's great to be here. Nice to have you back. Emily Real is assistant professor in the Department of Mathematics at Johns Hopkins, and she's joining us today from WGLT in Normal, Illinois. Welcome to the show, Emily. Thank you. Uh, Rebecca, let me ask you first. I want to bring up something that we said at the top of the show, which is that from a mathematician's point of view, a donut and a coffee cup are the same thing. How is that? <laughs> yeah. Well, so a lot of times mathematicians like to study uh, the way things that can be equivalent if you mush them around or deform them. So if you take a coffee cup, you can imagine that it's got exactly one hole in it, and that's where you'd put your hand to grab onto your coffee. And if you mush that around, you can kind of morph it into a donut. So people in the field of topology would call those things equivalent. And there's a lot of uh, attempts to kind of study mm. different spaces by keeping track of things like how many holes it has. Uh, our audience doesn't get a lot of a, cha a lot of chances, uh, a chance to talk to real mathematicians. So I want to open this up and give out the phone number if you want to talk to a mathematician about what's really interesting. 844-724-8255, 844-SCI-TALK. You can also tweet us uh, at SciFry. Um, and, and Rebecca, I know that one of the things you study is geometry and the structure of higher dimensions. What does that mean <laughs> exactly? How do you visualize well, higher dimensions or Great. Yeah, that's an awesome question. And actually, people often think that you have to see it in some kind of physical world. But just like when we study numbers and we talk about things like infinity, we don't always have a visual idea of how it actually looks. But to give a really kind of simple example of the kind of thing that I think is super fun and ends up being in very high dimensions, you can imagine questions like how you would intersect lines and planes. So imagine that you have in three-dimensional space, that's like our normal, like what we live in space, and you just took four lines, and the lines are not parallel, and they don't intersect with each other, and they're so they're just kind of sitting there skew, and you say, how many other lines intersect all four of those? And if you try to do that by hand, you might be able to get somewhere, but if you start ramping that question up and asking, okay, but let's assume that the lines live in a plane and the planes intersect in some other way and you start putting additional constraints on things, very quickly you get to very high dimensional questions um, and they're just a ton of fun, very beautiful mathematics there. Uh, I, my, my, my math teacher, my geometry teacher used to call things in math elegant solutions yeah. that were, is 
They were elegant, and we took his word for it. Um, uh, Eugenia, you and Emily are in the same math field. You're both category theorists. What is what does that mean? Do you have an example to help us envision what that means? Yeah, I like to call category theory the mathematics of mathematics. And to understand that, first I have to explain what mathematics is. You see, I don't think that mathematics is just about numbers and equations, although that may be the impression you get from classes in school, which is to me sad because math is about so much more than that. I think math is about understanding how things work very deeply. And we make analogies between different situations and say, what can we understand about these two cookies, for example, that is also going to be true about these two apples or these two people or these two other things. And that analogy turns into the number two. And category theory actually does that for mathematics itself. So it says, what about this branch of math can we understand that is similar to this other branch of math that's also similar to this other branch? And what we're going to do is be really lazy about it because I don't want to have to do the same thing over and over again. I don't know about you, but I hate doing the same thing over and over again. So instead of doing that, we're going to make a theory that will do it for us. And that's what category theory is. Oh, okay. Just uh, at, at the jeopardy of going further into the weeds, I'm going to ask Emily <laughs> Real to tell us about, she specializes in, in, a, a, in category theory specialization in something called what is it? Uh, well, actually, I work in infinite dimensional category theory. Oh, there it is. <laughs> and a way to think about what that does is if a category provides a template for a mathematical theory. So yeah. there are the mathematical objects, which are like the nouns of the theory. And then there are the transformations between those objects, which are the verbs. Um, but as mathematics becomes more complicated, uh, we need sort of a more robust linguistic template to describe um, the, the objects that mathematicians like Rebecca care about. So we might need pronouns, adjectives, adverbs, prepositions, conjunctions, interjunctions, and so on. And so that's where the infinite dimensions come in. We have not only the objects and the transformations, but there might be transformations between transformations, like the homotopy that turns a donut into an infinite dimensional plane and with a hole punctured in it. And if I can add to that, because I have to admit, I'm also an infinite dimensional <laughs> category theorist. You picked three mathematicians and two of them are infinite dimensional <laughs> category theorists. But it really, as Emily says very well, it's all about having more nuance so that we can talk about things with greater and greater subtlety. And that's something that we both believe in and I'm sure that all mathematicians believe in because things aren't just right and wrong. Unfortunately, in school math, things are often right and wrong and they're often wrong. But there are so many ways in which things can be the same and not the same, as Rebecca said, that a coffee cup can be considered to be the same as a donut. And just like we can consider relationships between people, but we can also compare right. relationships and say, well, whose relationship is better? But then we can say, well, maybe this relationship is better because they have more fun, but this other relationship is better because they don't argue very much. Yeah. And then we could compare the ways of comparing and say, well, which is more, which is better? Is it better to have more fun or is it better to avoid arguing? And this is another way that we get many dimensions. You, know, you just explained why Lewis Carroll was a mathematician, right? I mean, <laughs> Alison, you just had a scene out of Alice in Wonderland that you just <laughs> described. Uh, possibly something like that. And the wonderful thing about Alice in Wonderland is that it's anything is possible because it's happening inside someone's imagination. And that's a wonderful thing about math as well, that 
on the one hand, you might think it's, it makes it difficult that we can't necessarily see and touch things because they're not physically real. But the great thing is that we're not constrained by physical reality either. We're only constrained by our own imagination. And so if you have a huge imagination, that means you have a huge capacity for thinking about mathematics. So that means that things that you describe may have no consequence in reality. They may not describe nature or reality at all, but it just mathematically works and it's beautiful. Would that be fair? In that some all- sense, I think you're really asking a philosophical question there, right? Because I think many mathematicians feel like they're really discovering something that is, and it is under the context of some base set of assumptions and of course category theorists are very very concerned with those assumptions they're extremely important Um, but a lot of times once you sort of get into the weeds of something you're going to make some assumptions once you make those assumptions there's a tremendous amount of very beautiful mathematics that kind of fall out from the assumptions and from your agreed upon language let's say and many mathematicians feel Mm. like they're really discovering things rather than um rather than inventing them. So that's a little bit of a philosophical thing. Is it an invention or is it a discovery? And, um, you know, most of the things, even in very basic mathematics we talk about, it's not that we have a concrete thing to say. If I said, what's a number? You wouldn't really have an answer to that question, except that you can count things. But then what would be the number pi or what would be a negative number? We don't really have a concrete Mm. object, but we very easily, our minds are kind of set up to understand math in a much broader sense than just uh, it has to be physically there and physically present. And the consequences are very real. I mean, you couldn't put a man on the moon or a woman on the moon (laughs) if you weren't able to kind of uh, to be able to do calculations that involve things like real numbers which we don't have a concrete uh, thing to talk about. We just have actually our our minds to get our heads around it. Well, all, right. all of us who saw and read uh, Missing Figures will know exactly what you're talking about. And getting, hidden figures. Hidden yes. figures, I'm sorry. Yeah. Hidden yeah. figures, and the, yeah. The great thing about the, the interaction between math and reality is that you might not start out with a particular aim in mind. You might not have a specific application. But if you do some beautiful and profound mathematics, then often some unexpected application will come later Mm. that mathematicians were often not expecting and this can happen 10 years later it can happen 100 years later 300 years later for example that the number theory from hundreds of years ago is now at the basis of internet cryptography maybe thousands of years later the platonic solids the icosahedron from 2000 years ago didn't appear we weren't we didn't find examples in nature until the 1950s and so focusing on direct applications in life is not necessarily the best thing to do but focusing on something fundamental and and beautiful that's not necessarily real just like thinking about fiction well, and well, that but, can but, teach but, us let me about just our lives. but you can describe a passage in fiction and have people say aha i know what you're talking about but when you tell people what you're do- talking about how many can really understand why you see beauty there i say everyone can what does everyone else think rebecca no Well, I definitely think that it depends on what kind of level you're talking about when you say it. So I think that almost every single person I've ever talked to, I can find 
an interesting mathematical question that they can explore and see the beauty in. But of course, it's also true that we get very specialized and then we talk to other people who are also very specialized. And I don't see that as particularly different than what happens in any technical field, that there are some questions that are truly very interesting that say, Emily would find really interesting what I have to say about something, but um, someone else might not. Um, And that's okay because she's a highly trained mathematician. There's there's a conversation we had there. But but I do think that there's access to every everyone at some level depending on your background well you know you're right and i can see because my switchboard has lit up like (laughs) like it hasn't and they all want to talk about math so you really have hit home on uh, talking about mathematics our number if there's still room on 844-724-8255 or you could try tweeting us we we watch the twitter all the time at sci-fry we'll come back with uh take a lot of your phone calls this has really sparked interest stay with us we'll be right back after the break this is Science Friday. I'm Ira Flato. We're talking this hour about uh, mathematics, and it has sparked some great interest in our listeners. Let me quickly go through our guests. Rebecca Golden, Eugenia Chang, Emily Real, all uh, professional professional mathematicians. I guess you get paid for that instead of just doing the crossword puzzle. Um, let's go to the phones. Uh, I'll give out the number if there's room, 844-724-8255. Also, you can reach us uh, on Twitter at SciFry. Let's go to the first call from Bruce in Huntsville, Alabama. Hi, Bruce. Hello, hello. Hi there. Uh, my question is, uh, do mathematics exist uh, without human beings or a consciousness to uh, to think of them? Wow. <laughs> About philosophy, does mathematics exist without people? So here's, here's what I think. I think, I, like what Rebecca said, some mathematicians think they invent math and some people think they discover it. What I think is that I discover mathematical concepts and I invent language for thinking about it. So the philosophical question becomes, do thoughts exist? Do concepts, do ideas exist without humans existing? I think that the language that we invent for communicating mathematics to other people definitely does not exist without us. But those ideas, do they exist without us? I don't know. Wow. And let me see if uh, Rebecca or Emily wants to chime in on that. You, well, I think one thing that I'm appreciating as I uh, get further on in my career is uh, how important uh, communities, um, human communities are to the mathematics that's being developed. So if a uh, sort of very charismatic uh, lecturer or a good expositor can have a huge influence over field by making other young mathematicians excited and drawing people in. And so then a lot of energy happens focusing on particular problems and questions. And you could very easily Mm -hmm. imagine the development having been different. Let's go to uh, Homer in Woodland, California. Hi, Homer. Welcome to Science Friday. Hello. Thank you for taking my call. Um, I've been blind since birth. And uh, one of your guests was talking about uh, if you have a big imagination, you can pretty much do anything. (laughs) And and that's me. That's why I decided to call. Wonderful. you know, and I, I'm I'm attempting to write a book. You know, I'm a um, sci-fi enthusiast. Mm-hmm. So um, when you mentioned higher dimensions, it's about the kid who travels to higher dimensions. And basically, I'm just using my own imagination. So, um, That's wonderful. I don't know what to base it on. I mean, as far as I know, uh, third dimension is length, width, and height. But fourth dimension, I've heard, is time. I don't know if that's true or not. But then where do you go from there? I mean, what do we know about higher dimensions or what what we can do. So. All right, let's see if we can get some hints for you. Good, good luck, Homer. 
that's, yeah. uh, those are great questions, and I should add that there are, in fact, blind mathematicians. So it's, uh, it's certainly not impossible to do very high-level mathematics uh, if you're blind. There's, um, there, the, as far as looking at higher dimensions, one of the ways to think about it, I mean, a lot of people like to think of space and time as having those being those four dimensions that we can think about, but anytime you keep track of a bunch of things, you're really dealing in high dimensions. So if I wanted to keep track of uh, people's hair color and their eye color and their address and some other information, uh, then I'm really maybe their income and also their phone number. And that would be the kind of thing that maybe uh, realty, realty people are interested in keeping track of that kind of information. And that's already a bunch of dimensions, one dimension for each piece of information that you carry about somebody. Um, so there's a kind of way in which uh, what mathematics does with mm. dimension is really just keep track of things. And if you keep track of a lot of things, you're actually keeping track of a lot of dimensions. Well, you know, well, that the, the uh, high dimensions have been in the news uh, in physics, which takes mathematicians to figure it out for them, um, and especially string theory, talking about high, uh, big dimensions, or many. We're talking about 12, a dozen or more high uh, dimensions there. Do you understand what's going on there? And because you're all dimensional <laughs> mathematicians? There's sort of a joke in, in infinite dimensional category theory that once you're beyond three, it basically might as well be infinity. Because <laughs> it's so difficult beyond that. One, two, three, infinity. It's, it is hard to understand, but it's a great question when you say, do we really understand it? And I think one reason that many people have put off math is that they think they don't understand it. But none of us really understands it, honestly. We, we're just trying to understand it more all the time. And being confused doesn't mean that we're not good at it. Mm. I think a lot of people are put off because they, they, they feel confused and they go, oh, I'm no good at math. But actually being confused and caring about it is what matters. Often the people who think they understand it, they really don't. If you know, I might uh, yes, sorry, quickly ahead. add one practical suggestion, one way to uh, imagine what four or five dimensions might look like from the perspective of three dimensions is to imagine what uh, three dimensions would look like from the perspective of one or two dimensions. Um, so this is essentially the move that Edwin Abbott makes in his book Flatland, Flatland which is a yeah. wonderful novel. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, another way is to imagine escaping. So you can, ima you can escape someone who's chasing you in three dimensions by time traveling. <laughs> and then you can escape someone if they have a time traveling machine as well, then you can imagine what machine could you use to escape that person. Mm -hmm. That would be the f fifth dimension. I have, I have a tweet coming in from Dylan who touches on something that really bugs me and that is could you ask your experts what is the utility of zero? Now, when I watch baseball scores, I'm a big baseball fan, <laughs> and I watch the scores all the time, um, I ask, uh, zero is a number. People do not, you, you know, they, they, they say uh, we're at the bottom of the innings, there's no score. Of course, there is a score. It's zero, zero, <laughs> right? As, is it, and he says, is it odd for me that uh, we have a representation of nothing? Zero has been a big problem in math for, for centuries, hasn't it? Yeah, there was actually a very long history between when they thought of numbers and when they came up with zero. And the way I like to think about zero is your zero isn't that interesting, but you'd really miss it if it was gone. <laughs> and I tell my students that it's just like some people. They're not very interesting, but they can be really important. Sometimes the boring people are really important. And zero is a bit like that. You'd know if they were gone. <laughs> let me let me ask a, 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 you a, a, a question that, that has been... Uh, I've, I've talked about over the years, I, I, and I'll do it this way. I was once asked to create a panel of women physicists, and so I approached every notable women physicist that I knew, and I asked them to sit on this panel 
And not one of them said that they would because they said, we don't want to be known famous as women physicists. We are physicists regardless of our gender. We are physicists who happen to be women. Do mm-hmm. you feel that same way about math, women mathematicians? I mean, you, you must have faced the probable problem of being a, a one woman mathematician in a, you know, in a field of, of many men mathematicians. Of course. I'm happy to jump in, but I would like to, to see if everyone else would like to speak first. Well, I'll say something about that. I, I think that this is probably something that in part was the specific women that you spoke with. I don't think that everybody feels uniformly the same mm-hmm. about this question, but I think that many women have kind of common experiences as uh, they kind of progress through their careers, both at the early times and then as they kind of go through, things come up in different kind of ways in different stages of the career. And I think at least speaking for myself, being female within mathematics has uh, definitely played a role for how it's come out, whether that's good or bad. And so if somebody kind of identifies you as a female in the field, of course, you don't want that to be the only thing about you that is uh, viable. There's 50% of our population is female. I hopefully that people would be interested in hearing also about my mathematics or my ideas or other kinds of things. But I don't think it's irrelevant either. If it if it were irrelevant, we wouldn't have such a shortage of women in mathematics. We wouldn't have such a difference in a, um, achievement levels that we kind of see in society amongst those people who do get higher degrees in mathematics. And so I think it's a very real issue that has social consequences. Mm-hmm. And as Emily was talking about earlier in the program, if if you can't have a community, you really don't have mathematics as we know it. So if the community becomes one in which there are very few women or in which women are discouraged or in which women don't don't kind of get to the same place as men, then I think it's, it is an issue. And so it's hard to both acknowledge it's an issue and refuse to kind of recognize yourself as mm-hmm. part of that conversation, whether it's you're male and you're part of the conversation or you're female and part of the conversation. Yes, I agree. And when I was younger and I was just starting out I really also didn't want to draw attention to the fact that I was a woman and I didn't want to give anyone the opportunity to say that I wasn't good enough because I was a woman and then as I became more advanced and I became more secure and I got a permanent job and I was respected in the community I became more I became more um, active about it and as the situation hasn't improved I think enough that women are still very underrepresented. I realized that we need to do more and do more actively. And I wanted to take more responsibility for putting myself out there. If I complain that the images of women, of the images of men in mathematics as presented by the media are largely older white men, then I need to put myself forward to help dispel those images. And so I realized Mm -hmm. eventually that I needed to do something more active and make myself more visible. And I was very inspired actually by mathematicians like Emily, who works in my field, coming and being much more active and um, vocal about those issues. Mm -hmm. Emily, you're a mathematician, but you're also a sportswoman. You played rugby, right? (laughs) How is that, is that different from being a, a woman in math, different than uh, similar being a woman in sports? Uh, well, so I would just come back from a sabbatical in Sydney where one of my main collaborators lives. And uh, there I'd have kind of a funny experience of going to the Australian, the Center of Australian Category Theory for seminar. And I would be the only woman out of about 15 mathematicians at all levels. And then I'd go directly from that to... Uh, training for Australian rules football, where there would be 50 women of all all ages. Um, so it, it is uh, 
quite a transition. But at this point in my career, I'm uh, mostly attentive to how underrepresentation along gender axes, but other axes as well, affects my students. So when I teach uh, sort of a large multivariable calculus course to you know 350 incoming students at Johns Hopkins, um, mm -hmm. I start with a comic, um, an XKCD comic by Randall Monroe entitled How It Works. And what the comic is, is it's a two stick figures at a chalkboard. One's drawing an integral and the other walks by and says, wow, you suck at math. But then in an identical panel right next to it, the, the person with the chalk is a, a female and the uh, caption is now, wow, girls suck at math. And I, I use this comic to explain how it's harder for students who feel like they stand out in the sea of faces in the classroom to ask a question and, and to um, mm -hmm. really engage with the mathematics in a way that I think makes it easiest to learn. Mm -hmm. and do, do, are there any are, are there any other uh, stereotypes uh, you know that that you face as mathematicians, women mathematicians? I, I don't think I'll. Sorry. Oh no, <laughs> I mean, go on. I, I don't think all the stereotyping happens along gender lines. Mm -hmm. So, um, uh, for instance, there's a you know one of my one of the people I'm inspired by is John Urschel, who was a, a, a guard for the Baltimore Ravens, um, but recently retired from professional football to uh, focus full-time on his uh, PhD in applied mathematics at MIT. So, Wow. Um, yeah, so I agree that it's not just about gender, and I've been proposing that we should change the words we use about gender so that instead of thinking about masculine and feminine behavior, we should use non-gender prescriptive words that are descriptive of character traits instead. So I've been proposing ingressive and congressive to replace masculine and feminine. And the idea is that ingressive, ingressive is about going into things and not really worrying too much. And congressive is about bringing things together in Congress. And mathematics is ultimately a very congressive pursuit. We're trying to understand things and we collaborate a lot together. Yet mathematics is presented ingressively and it's tested ingressively. There are tests, there are competitions. It's about right and wrong. There's problem solving, competitions, competitive atmospheres to get into, get PhD places and to get promotions. When in the end, the math that certainly that, that we do is about shedding light on situations and making connections between situations. And so if people are put off by the ingressive characteristics of mathematics, then they'll never get to the part where it becomes beautifully congressive. The, so you can see she's a uh, Clearly a category theorist. <laughs> <laughs> this is Science Friday from PRI, Public Radio International. I'm Ira Plato talking mathematics. Well, let me just follow that point a little more. So you're saying that women, because they are more inclusive, they're, they're congressive, they're better, might be better mathematicians or better at solving the problem with other mathematicians? I'm thinking that congressive people are better in certain ways. For example, congressive people are more likely to underestimate their own abilities and seek to improve a lot. And over the, the 20 years I've been teaching undergraduates, I've noticed that the female students are often think they're doing terribly when they're doing fine, and the male students often think they're doing fine when they're doing terribly. <laughs> Wow, we have. So there's, um, <laughs> there are lots of other kind of um, pieces to that story as well. I love, I love this discussion, this conversation, and I think also there's a, a another feature or bias or division that you might say that that really has to do with young versus old people. So there's this kind of idea in mathematics that you you peak when you're young and you have mm. to be very young to do mathematics. So if you're not showing some kind of uh, brilliant, sparky, shiny something by the time you're 
you're 14, you're just not all that good and uh, no one's going to invest in you. And I think that is something that's really quite pernicious because mm -hmm. people often come to mathematics a little bit later or, as was also mentioned earlier on your show, that like they're in school mathematics, it's not very interesting to them and they're not very invested in doing it very well and it's not until they mm -hmm. get quite far into the game mathematically that they see something really beautiful, something beyond calculus, yes. something that really kind of exactly. gets them to fall in love. And that mm -hmm. kind of story, then by then you've fallen in love and now you're say 21, you're basically an old maid. I mean, that's, a, <laughs> I think, a really incorrect yes. assumption yes. about how mathematics is learned, how it's how it grows on people and how they become mathematicians. But it is quite a, a pervasive uh, yes. viewpoint. And the idea of a math prodigy can contribute to people thinking that you have to be born with that ability. And then it's the opposite of the growth mindset. It's the fixed mindset where you think wow. you've either got yeah. it or you haven't. Whereas no one thinks about biology prodigies. You don't say, oh, that was a child prodigy in biology. And if you can't, if you're not brilliant at biology by the time you're 11, then it's all over. Well, let me, uh, we have about a minute left, but let me wrap this up by asking, we were talking about romanticizing math, and I'm curious what mythological creatures come to your mind when you think of math. <laughs> So uh, I kind of think of math as a phoenix um, in that uh, we still use theorems today that were first proven um, millennia ago. Um, the, the, the truths that were discovered are then used, but the, the way that we talk about the mathematical ideas of um, centuries past is completely different. It's completely uh, unrecognizable, I think, um, because we've uh, consolidated our understanding. We've invented new mathematical universes to explore. What? That's a lovely image. Yeah. I've described it in my book, Beyond Infinity, I described infinity as a Loch Ness monster because it's a creature. And what we ma I feel like I'm doing as a mathematician is I go off into the undergrowth or the jungle or the, the na nature and I wander around looking for strange creatures or just traces of strange creatures. And whether they exist or not doesn't really matter. But in the process of looking for them, we understand more about ourselves and the world around us. Quickly, Rebecca, you got one? That's great. So I, I think we're all charging, choosing like large, scary creatures. I would choose a dragon. But for me, it's about sort of this huge, untamable, scary thing that I just have to have okay. somehow. Like I want it for my pet, but I can't have it. I, I, um, I, I'm going to have to. We'll, <laughs> we'll, go, we'll come back. There's such a great interest in this. I Who, who knew? Rebecca Golden, professor of uh, Department of Math Science at George Mason University. Eugenia Chang. Chang is at School of Art uh, Institute at Chicago. And Emily Real, assistant professor in the Department of Math at uh, Johns Hopkins. Great discussion on math. We'll, we'll such interest, we'll have to come back and bring them back on to talk more about it. Stay with us. We'll be right back after this. This is Science Friday. I'm Ira Flato. I'd like to try a little thought experiment with you all, and that is, what if Facebook was a country? I'm not talking about some sort of physical territory like the U.S. of Facebook. It would still exist entirely online. But if Facebook were a country, its 2 billion users would outstrip even China by almost 40%. And it would be powerful enough to say, oh, I don't know, impact elections in sovereign states, do you think? Before the Internet, our world was defined by physical boundaries made up of nation states. But now... We also have Internet titans like Facebook and Google and Twitter and YouTube. You could probably throw Apple in there, too. And they wield enough power to influence global politics. So how should traditional nation states confront the rise of these boundaryless, boundaryless net states? Nations know how to sanction countries when they do us wrong. 
How do we sanction a net state? Joining me for this thought experiment are my guests. Alexis Wachowski teaches on media, government, and technology at Columbia University School of International and Public Affairs. And Max Reed, editor of Select All, New York Magazine's technology website. Uh, do you think net states like Facebook should be given a seat at the geopolitical table? Give us a call on number 844-724-8255. Alexis and Max, welcome to Science Friday. Thanks, Thanks. for having me. Thanks for having us. Uh, l- let me begin with you, Alexis. We had this uh, geopolitical term for countries, or call them nation states, mm-hmm. and you use the term net states to describe these powerful companies like Facebook and Google. Flesh out a little, a little bit more what a net state, what your idea of a net state is. So one of the reasons for uh, coming up with this term was that we didn't have good language to talk about what entities like Facebook and Google and even collectives, technology collectives like Anonymous and WikiLeaks, what they are. Um, A long time ago, maybe 20 years ago, the word non-state actor was a pretty neutral term. The Oxford Dictionary of Social Science used uh, NATO and the United Nations as examples of non-state actors back then. But since that has become a term associated with terrorists, we need a new language, I think, to discuss what these entities are and have better conversations about to them to understand what they mean in our current landscape. So I would say that what net states are, are they're online entities that have a large international followings or devotees or, or membership who have some sort of political or belief-driven agenda. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think there's a huge variety of net states out there. And it's not to say that they are good or bad. It's just uh, to observe the phenomenon of what we're we're seeing right now. Max, you agree? Yeah. I mean, one of the things that we've noticed as we've been talking about uh, in, in the news over the last few months is we've been talking about Facebook's role, not just in the U.S. election, but in the German election and in elections around the world, is that uh, we all are aware that Facebook has this kind of immense power, but we haven't right. really thought through how that power relates to governments or to citizens, um, and it helps to have terminology to talk about it. But but it's also interesting that they haven't seen the people who founded Facebook and Twitter, they haven't thought that through either. <laughs> no, uh, it seems as though Facebook has grown a little bit too quickly and a little bit too big uh, for Mark Zuckerberg and other executives to quite understand what they've got going on there. I, I'm going to quote today in Washington Post an article online from Sean Parker, uh, one mm-hmm. of the Facebook founders who said, I'm going to go through the article here, he says, I don't know if I really understood the consequences of what I was saying <laughs> because the unintended consequences of a network when it grows into a billion or two billion people and it literally changes your relationship with society. Yeah. Right? Absolutely. We haven't thought that through. So how do you then deal with the net state? I mentioned sanctions before. You know, if we, we talk about putting tariffs and things on countries that we want to sanction. Can you do that with a net state? Well, you can regulate them. I mean, one of the things about the internet that's kind of astounding is that for the most part, it's still unregulated, except in places like China. Um, And so that's one possible way of governments, traditional nation states, exerting influence over what net states can do. But it's not clear that uh, it's going to happen. And it's not clear even if that's possible at this point because of their size and their reach. Uh, internationally. Not only, go ahead, Max. Uh, I mean, I think one thing that's important to keep in mind when we talk about net states, um, just as Alexis says, that they, you know, as big and and uh, and huge as they are, and as border crossing as they are, they still are. They they operate under the rule of law theoretically. They are American companies and corporations that are subject to American laws and regulations. And there's a big right now a sort of building antitrust movement, in fact, aimed at uh, using antitrust law and government power, not just to regulate, but to check that power and 
and to even, you know, maybe even break up the companies in some cases. But, but I, I was going to say one of the things that I think complicates matters is I think the companies, the net states have anticipated these kinds of um, potential actions. And d Google, for instance, has data barges in international water waters. There, there's not, even though they may be um, physically located based in the United States, they have data centers all over the world. So that makes it much more complicated in terms of enforcing regulations against them. Mm -hmm. They also have stockholders. <laughs> yeah. right? I mean, they're beholden yeah. to their stockholders to maximize their profits and, and do what it takes to keep the company healthy. Yeah. I mean, in some ways, that's that's a problem. And that's a problem for Facebook, which has, uh, you know, its day-to-day -day mission when we use it is to connect people with one another, to save photographs, to help each other. But... Uh, you know, its its obligations as a as a corporation are to maximize profit, and to do so, it needs to create a space that um, sells advertising at this kind of unbelievable scale. And in my opinion, that turns it into a service that's incredibly easy to manipulate and misuse. Mm -hmm. So, so should we, if we go back to our geopolitical model, we have the United Nations. Should there be some sort of nation state, United Nations, or something? To to deal with that. It's really, Is that possible? It's a really interesting question. And, and even if you think, so I worked at the United Nations for several years through the State Department, and there's 193 countries represented there, but it doesn't mean that the United Nations actually exerts a ton of control over them. Yeah. Um, and so even if there were some sort of confederacy of net states, it doesn't necessarily mean that it would be a governing body or able to uh, make the companies change any of their behaviors in, an, in, in a practical way. Mm -hmm. Let's go to the phones, 844-724-8255. Let's go to, uh, is it Sherry in Davenport? Sheree. Sheree in Davenport, Iowa. Sorry, Sheree. Go ahead. Yeah, no worries. Um, yeah, I just wanted to comment uh, on uh, the fact that I think that there should be some kind of, I know it's like you, it's, you've kind of touched on it, international law protecting the individuals of each country um, from intervention by these companies i mean what really concerns me and has been a problem and a concern for many people across the world is the influence that these companies have on governmental proceedings but then they aren't held to like say you know according to constitutional law the government is held to a standard that protects the individual's rights but that doesn't necessarily translate right now for these companies that are able to internationally influence government you know what I mean? And so I just feel like there needs to be more stringent regulation collectively across the globe to ensure that individuals' rights in every part of the world are being protected since these, these groups or corporations are able to influence their, their government. Mm. That's pretty much what I wanted to say. All right. Thanks for your call. Alexis? Yeah, I have one thought about this. It reminded me of how in the European Union there's an attempt to uh, make sure that Google has... Um, the, the so-called right to be forgotten laws that mm -hmm. Google, if asked, will take down information about a person to to protect individuals' right to have their some control over their data. But one of the challenges is even if you have a country in the European Union who takes down or can take down their data on Google, what about all of the other countries that where that data exists? So it, it's very difficult to enforce in a practical sense, even if countries are making the attempt to protect individuals in this way. So this isn't really, you know, we're trying to compare these to corporations, but we've we've talked about this in, in the early age when we didn't have the online stuff. They were just companies and phrases like, what's good for General Motors is good for the USA. You know, uh, 
that, that corporations were able to sort of call a lot of the shots because of their size. Mm. Well, what's different now? We just have different corporations. Well, why is that different? Well, one big reason it's different is that uh, a company like General Motors was helpful in creating a huge middle class in Michigan and, in fact, across the whole country. And um, right now, tech companies, Facebook in particular, Google to a somewhat lesser extent, and Amazon to an mm -hmm. even lesser extent, just aren't providing those kinds of jobs in the same scale that the industrial giants of the early 20th century were. So it's not just that they uh, are wielding this immense influence. They're wielding an influence both uh, as profit engines, but also as profit engines that are generating money just for a, a much smaller class of people. Um, mm -hmm. You know, you, there's plenty of reasons to object to the idea that just because a company provides jobs, it deserves say. But I think that there's even less of a case for a company like Facebook deserving to ha to throw its weight around the way it does if it's not even, you know, uh, building wealth for regular people in the U.S. Well, there's more to, more to uh, contributions to society than building wealth, though, because one of the things that these companies have done, which makes them different than traditional companies, is provide a kind of public fora. Um, they're, they're sort of the modern town squares, whether we like it or not. And it's, I think, um, providing people a space to communicate and to connect it does provide some sort of public service, even though they're not. It's not something we measure economically. Yeah, and that's absolutely true. And and I think that uh, it's something that Facebook is slowly realizing about itself that it it, rep it has a public service component to it that it maybe hasn't taken the full responsibility for in the past. Um, the mm -hmm. again, you know, for me, what I keep coming back to is the sense: should a business whose entire business model is based on selling advertising be the town square you know it's a little bit like seeding all the functions of a town square to a mall and you wouldn't want you know you wouldn't want to have public debates in a mall necessarily um, and I love malls I think malls are great but there should be still a real public space that doesn't um, have that kind of commercial aspect to it mm -hmm. for people to communicate yeah because I, you see people now who are upset with the the politicizing I mean the political discussion on Facebook mm -hmm. saying I need another platform <laughs> I need something else <laughs> yep. right yeah Absolutely. Whoever thought MySpace would go anywhere, <laughs> right? And we sort of think that these things are so big that they can't dissolve, but history shows they can be dissolved. I mean, one thing, I, I've moved a lot for personally from Facebook to Instagram over the last few years because Instagram's a much more pleasant place for me. There's a lot less political discussion, a lot more nice photographs and videos, but Instagram's owned by Facebook. Um, some of these companies are so big and so good mm -hmm. at buying up potential future competitors, and we have a, a, a government, like an antitrust administration, that's just not very interested in checking that power. It means that Facebook is buying up WhatsApp and Instagram and uh, sort of building a big moat outside of itself in a way that I'm not sure we've really seen before, and certainly that MySpace didn't have before it was toppled by Facebook. Mm. Are, are net states doing things better now? Let's go to the other side of the coin. Mm -hmm. Better than what nation states are well, doing. One of the examples that I was just reading about recently was what's happening in the relief efforts in Puerto Rico. The U.S. government has been very slow, or was very slow initially, in responding to um, the uh, to, to Puerto Rico after the hurricanes, and we saw Google uh, deploy one of its projects uh, called Project Loon, these high-altitude balloons that yeah. provide internet service and cell phone service to try to step in, and Tesla stepped up to try to provide power and electricity. So. We were seeing the tech companies, the net states, rally in a way that government wasn't, um, or in different ways. There weren't people on the ground, but they were still trying to provide services that traditionally would have been um, in the responsibility of government to rebuild the infrastructure. Yeah. Uh, we're, we're talking about net states this hour on Science Friday from PRI, Public Radio International. 
talking with Alexa, Alexis Wachowski and uh, Max Reed. Uh, well, an interesting tweet came in because we all know that everything in science has a history in science fiction. <laughs> um, the corporations as nation states, David Best writes, uh, that you're talking about right now is literally straight out of cyberpunk writing. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Max, talk yeah. about that? Well, I mean, I, I say as a big William Gibson fan, as somebody <laughs> who's, who's read Neuromancer more times than I'd like to admit, a lot of my interest in this comes from a recognition of the... Uh, the sort of dystopia that um, that you first saw see you first saw rise in the '80s in fiction is coming to pass in ways that I'm not quite sure we anticipated quite so much. Um, it's uh, if you're a if you're a science fiction fan or a wannabe science fiction writer as as I am, then journalism is a great field to be in right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And uh, there's one book in particular, uh, The Circle by David Eggers, that really touches uh, very nicely. It's not as Historical, it doesn't go back to yeah. the 80s. I think this was just a few years ago that it was published, but talking about sort of the rise of the net states and uh, what it would do to modern society. Well, you know, thinking about science fiction, what, what, what fascinates me now as being someone in the inside, as we all are, and also someone who covers a lot of science and experimentation, is that we really are all a part of a giant experiment now, <laughs> aren't we? Yeah. Yeah, and we all live. It's, in... it's frightening. Doesn't it frighten you? That we mean, don't know where this is bit. headed. And, you know, I, I I just wrote a very long article about Facebook. I spent a lot of time freaking myself out and psyching myself out about the amount of information it has on me, about the kind of tests it can run on me without me knowing. And I still couldn't bring myself to quit at the end of it. I'm still there. <laughs> exactly. So so you're not seeing people. You said, you know, you're, you're having second thoughts. I, I know people who are now getting off of Facebook. They're getting, get, trying to not tweet as much as they or follow Twitter as much. I mean, I see that a little bit. A but... little backlash? I mean, but the scale we're talking about, you know, a, a few, even a few hundred thousand people doesn't make much of a difference. And, uh, and I don't know about you, but what I see is when I see my friends uh, take temporary breaks from Facebook, it's 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 that it's temporary. Yeah. It's, they go off for about a month or two and then they come back on because they've missed it. They've missed that sense of connection. So is it ripe then for another disruptor to come in and create something different, maybe? A little more friendly, or are we all just? <laughs> I mean, uh, you know, everything goes down to the lowest common denominator when you have giant populations. I mean, my feeling, you know, as a pessimist, is that uh, the big companies that we're talking about, Facebook, let's just say Facebook, Google, Amazon, and Apple being the big four, that have they've created, they have so much wealth, they have so much, they have so much, they've reached a scale that's almost impossible to sort of topple. And you see companies like Facebook not just buying up potential future competitors like Instagram, but in the case of another potential future competitor like Snapchat, which refused to sell, outright stealing features of that app and installing it in their own apps. And, uh, and you know, Snapchat just released some really bad earnings. Its stock is tanking in part because of that um, exact dynamic. Um, you know, I disruption is always possible. Like, mm -hmm. I'd be stupid not to, to think that maybe something is going to come from the outside. But we're not in a moment right now where there's a new technology emerging the way the internet was, say, in the early 2000s, that a small... Uh, underfunded company could take advantage of and use it to topple giants. Um, I think, you know, if we're worried about the power of these big companies, mm -hmm. we need to have, there needs to be a public response, not just a consumer response. I'm looking toward the, uh, my own personal view is looking toward the entertainment industry. <laughs> People on, you know, uh, doing these games online and playing something out of there, I think is going to come. <laughs> Who knows? Thank you very much. Alexis Wachowski teaches on media, government, and technology at the Columbia University School of International and Public Relations. And Max Reed, editor 
of Select All, New York Magazine's technology uh, website. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for taking time to be with us today. B.J. Liederman composed our theme music, and if you missed part of the program, you want to hear it again. We had a lot to talk about today. Go to our website, subscribe to our podcast, or anywhere you get your podcast. You can you can hear us, and of course, you can ask uh, you can ask Alexa, Amazon Echo. Or Google Home, and I won't say the words that turn it on because we get people angry when that happens. So, uh, you know, that's why we say every day now is Science Friday. Also, uh, Facebook. You go on our Facebook page. We talk about it. We are, yeah, we have Twitter and Facebook and all that kind of stuff. And um, also think about this holiday season about Science Friday when you're thinking about making your donations of where you'd like to support. Science Friday would, uh, would love to hear from you. Have a great weekend. Happy Science Day. It is International Science Day. I'm Ira Flato in New York.